Well, welcome to our midweek service at Graceway Baptist Church. And thank you so much for tuning in. And um, before we get started into the scripture, I just want to say as a personal word, thank you so much for your prayers. And um, I appreciate everybody who has reached out to the throne of grace on my behalf. Um, keep praying. The Lord is working and uh, we'll uh, keep moving on until we get back to normal as much as possible. And uh, things are going well. I'm breathing better, uh, working to get my strength back. Um, I'm already off of a couple of medicines that the doctor has put me on. And so, uh, again, I, I can't thank you enough for all of that. It means, uh, means a lot to me. Now, we've been uh, looking for several weeks at Psalm 137. Now let me call your attention back to where we started. This is uh, written, we don't know exactly when, and we don't know the author. But it's obvious from the things that are written that this is during the Babylonian captivity. Now the southern kingdom of Judah was made up of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And they kind of had the idea that they were safe because they had Jerusalem and Jerusalem had the temple and God's not going to let anything happen to his house, his temple, his place of worship, his show place. And God raised up the Babylonians in the King James are called Chaldeans. And they seemed to come out of nowhere. In fact, when it was first prophesied that they would be captivated by these people, it was laughable. What are you talking about here? Um, it was something that seemed so inconceivable. Who are these people? But boy, they grew into a mighty force and a mighty empire. And they invade Jerusalem. The walls are torn down. Houses are torn down and... Um, the temple itself is just a pile of rubble and Nebuchadnezzar and his people have not only destroyed the temple, but they plundered the temple. And anybody else, if they had done anything like that, say uh, a typical Israeli had just, you know, been at the temple and they walked into the wrong place, even accidentally, they would have died, right? And yet Nebuchadnezzar goes in there and takes the gold and um, the silver and all of the artifacts out of the Holy of Holies, and God doesn't do anything. And all of this was a punishment to his own people, the people of God. He had warned them, warned them, warned them, and warned them. And yet they continued to, in a sense, spit in his face and worship false gods. Well, when they're taken out of Jerusalem and they're in exile for 70 years, they said, we hung our harps, these instruments of joy, we hung them on the willows, for how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the people of Babylon were taunting them, sing one of your songs, sing one of your great songs about the uh, supremacy and the sovereignty and the power of your God so we can laugh. And back in those days, people that believed in 
polytheism. They believed in gods of different nations, races, or regions of the world. And if I were able to conquer you, then in my mind, my gods are stronger than your gods. And so you can see whenever they said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion, one of the Lord's songs, that was only for uh, their amusement. So they could laugh at God and laugh at God's people, and they could also proclaim the supremacy of their gods. Now, no wonder in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord says, when I got you out of Babylon and ended the captivity and brought you back into the land, I didn't do it for you. I did it for my sake because my name was profaned among the nations where you went. And so the Lord is uh, disciplining his people and correcting his people. And we talked about in those first few verses that life of regret. God does not want you to have a life of regret. But sin, as we've said so many times before and heard so many times, it'll take you further than you wanted to go, cost you more than you wanted to pay, and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And so 70 years in Babylon is a long time. Now, if you were young enough when the captivity started, you might live long enough to go back to Jerusalem, but you probably wouldn't remember it because how old do you have to be to live that 70 years to, to go back? If you were taken captive at two or five or 10 or something like that, uh, you, you would, and at certain ages you, of course, would remember Jerusalem. But the vast majority of the remnant that returned to Jerusalem had never seen it. They had never seen the temple. They had never witnessed the rituals of Passover or any of those type of things. They didn't know the land. And uh, they were, it, it was a brand new thing for them. So they had to go back and, I guess, relearn, or for a lot of them, for the first time, learning those things. And so um, the psalmist is just saying, what have we done? And how can we do this? And how terrible is this life? And we remember Zion. What are they saying here? Our life here in Babylon is nothing but regret because we brought this on ourselves. Now, when we think about the Babylonians, we are thinking about people that are particularly evil. The things that they did in Jerusalem and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem are awful, they're heinous. And so the resentment that the Israelis would have for the Babylonians would be pretty strong and pretty fierce. And what we're going to read about today is how they responded to all of the things the Babylonians did. And let me just warn you, it's going to be a little bit shocking as we read these verses of Scripture. But uh, hopefully by the time we finish, it will make more sense. Psalm 137, verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, 
raise it. Now, notice that word is not R-A-I-S-E, if you're listening. It's R-A-Z-E. Tear it down. Flatten it. Bulldoze it, we might say. And do it to its very foundation. And when it says to its very foundation, there's two aspects of that. One could be physically knock the building, the temple or whatever, down to where there's nothing left but the foundation on which it's built. But it also could be making reference to the foundation of the culture. Tear everything down so that it can never be rebuilt, so that they can never worship again, so that they can never practice uh, their faith or anything like that. Just uh, the Bible talks about if the foundations be destroyed, uh, what can the righteous do? There's a, a moral and a religious foundation. And it may be that the Edomites are cheering on the Babylonians saying, make it so that the Jews can never be Jews again. Verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, who are to daughters of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Well, that's horrible, isn't it? That's so unlike what we would expect. But notice that as the, the psalmist writes all of that, that he is not calling for that to happen, but he is acknowledging the fact that it is going to happen. And the word happy can also be blessed. The one who destroys your children in your way of life is one who may they be blessed. Uh, the only thing I can really um, think about here is in times of war, people get hurt and innocent people get hurt. When you think about the dropping of an atomic bomb on Hiroshima or Nagasaki, do you think that maybe people here in the United States maybe cheered? Do you think that maybe it was looked upon with favor? Well, of course it was. And uh, in looking at that, they estimate that uh, a million American lives may have been saved, but look at all of the Japanese people and a lot of innocent people that were killed by the dropping of that bomb. It's a part of war. It's what you do to your enemy. It's how you um, rectify the things that you believe are wrong. Now, think about what your life would be like if you were a Jew in Jerusalem and all of a sudden the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are able to breach the walls that you thought would defend you and think about what is happening when they come into your land and they plunder, they take everything and they kill people, they kill a lot of innocent people and they take your very children 
your babies and they take them by the feet and they smash them against a wall or against a stone or any other thing that might be like that, you might have some trouble getting over that. And you might have some trouble trying to uh, think about them with good thoughts or kindness or anything like that. And it's easy for us when we look at these things, how could these people who are supposed to be the people of God, how could they think about anything so horrible, so horrific, and yet at the same time understand we didn't live through it and the Babylonians didn't do that to our temple or to our houses or to our children. And so it's a little easier for us to look at it differently than someone who uh, had actually lived through it. When you uh, think about going back to World War II, the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the killing of our soldiers and sailors on that uh, Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941, there was a tremendous, tremendous feeling uh, of negativity toward the Japanese in the United States. Now we can argue in our generation, whether that was right or wrong, good or bad, justified or immoral. And I kind of lean to the fact that some of it was immoral. But uh, nonetheless, when you live in that situation and you've had that happen to you, your reaction is probably a little bit different than it is had you never been through it. And that's what this psalmist is writing about as one who has lived through that and uh, we want to make the points as he is calling upon God and talking about God to do some things. Now, number one, consider this. A life without regret recognizes the evil of passivity. Passivity, just watching, letting something happen. The Edomites were sort of cheering on the Babylonians and yet they might be able to say, well, we didn't actually do it. We didn't actually go and, you know, destroy the temple or anything like that. But you go back and you notice what the scripture says. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. And I am reminded when I read that of what Edmund Burke said, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Now, I don't know that the Edomites would be considered good men, but it is certainly true. They did nothing. They were sort of in favor of all of this. Now, the Edomites, they are the descendants of Esau. Remember him? And Esau and Jacob didn't like each other and didn't get along well with each other, and neither did their descendants. In that culture in the Middle East, you carry on the grudge that your parents had, and your children carry on the grudge that you had, and it goes on for generations. And when you think about uh, all of the problems that Israel, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, had with the Edomites... Now when the Israelis are finally getting it from the Babylonians, what are the Edomites doing? Well, they don't lift a hand to help, even though they are relatives. And they don't lift a hand to stop 
or prevent anything. In fact, silently and in their hearts, they are cheering it on. Cheering it on. In fact, they want it to go further, do more. And so uh, evil triumphed in that day. I found a quote from Martin Luther King. He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetuate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that one of the things we learn from all of this as we read about the Edomites is that where we see evil, we shouldn't participate in it. And sometimes by ignoring it, looking the other way, acting as though it doesn't exist, we actually help perpetuate it. Passivity is an evil, evil thing. And the psalmist brings this out. Remember the Edomites. They didn't actually capture us. They didn't actually destroy uh, us. It was the Chaldeans. But they're as guilty as the Chaldeans or Babylonians were because they saw it and they did nothing. I want to ask a question. What do you think it means to be salt and to be light in a crooked and a perverse generation like the one in which we live? And I don't think it just means look the other way when you see someone that is being hurt or being taken advantage of. I don't think it means just live your own life when babies are being aborted, when perversion rules the land, when there's crime and injustice, when uh, we think about sex trafficking and drug abuse and all of those kind of things. Where are Christians who are standing up? And I thank God that there are a lot of Christians who do stand up and feel strongly about the immorality, the sin, and the injustices. But what about you? It's easy to just ignore it, look the other way. It's easy to read things in the paper, to watch things on the news, to hear things on the radio, to look at things on the internet, and just say, oh, well, it doesn't involve me. It's not my problem. And yet we find from these verses, that's exactly the psalmist, uh, what the psalmist is doing when he's calling on God to remember what the Edomites did, or maybe we should say what they didn't do. If God were to call that up against us, would we be held accountable for all of the things we knew about, but we didn't want to get involved in? And that's precisely what happened back in the Holocaust. There were a lot of Germans who knew what was being done to the Jews, but they didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to get in trouble. They didn't want to have any of that come back on them. You have others, if you've read Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, you have others like uh, her father who knew that the Jews were the people of God and they knew that what the Nazis were doing to the Jews even there in Holland was not right and so they did everything they could to um, hide Jews and to get Jewish people out of Holland and they did it at great personal peril because they themselves ended up 
in a concentration camp. And uh, we think about people like that, and we think about those who are willing to take the risks, and we call them heroes, and we love hearing their testimonies, and we love reading their books. But what are we doing in our time, and what are we doing in our generation to stop evil and to stand up for righteousness? What are we doing? Are we like the Edomites? And do we sometimes even maybe cheer them on a little bit because we didn't like the people that are being hurt anyway? Or we say it serves them right or they brought it on themselves? Well, that was certainly true in this situation. The Jews had been warned over and over and over, and yet they continued to worship idols. And so there's a sense to where we could say, well, you knew and you're reaping what you sow. And yet the psalmist says, the Edomites did nothing, did nothing to alleviate the suffering or to stop any of these things. Remember that, O Lord, and the Lord certainly did. There are lots of Jews today living in Israel and lots of Jews living in other places like the United States. But you'll look long and hard to find an Edomite, and yet they come from the same source, don't they? And uh, they've been around as long as one another, but one is blessed and the other one is largely forgotten and unknown. So that's number one, the evil of passivity. Number two, a life without regret is lined up with God's will. Okay, now you're going to have to think about this. O daughter of Babylon who are to be destroyed, who are to be destroyed. How could somebody pray something like that? How could you in good conscience pray for something like that? Someone does something to you. Someone does something to your family. The natural thing would be to pray to the Lord, destroy them, get them, bring them to justice. The psalmist here is doing something more than just expressing a personal opinion. The psalmist here is lining up with the will of God. I'm not going to do it now, but if you were to go, there are a lot of places you could go. I'll just call reference to one. Isaiah 13, verse 1, all the way into chapter 14, verse 23, is a description of what God says he is going to do to Babylon. Babylon is a tool of God's discipline for Israel. That's, there's no doubt about that. But also, Babylon is not just going along saying, well, this is by the command of God. They want to do this. And they are ecstatic about how many Jews they can kill. They are enthusiastically tearing down and burning up the temple and looting it. They are raping women. They are pillaging. They are doing all of that. And they are gleeful about the whole thing. In fact, even at the beginning of this psalm, there's the taunt Again, oh, sing us your song, your song of Zion, and tell us how great your life was and how powerful your God is. And they're just laughing away at all of that. 
And so God holds Babylon responsible. He uses them on one hand, but they're also accountable. They're responsible in that. And so he has said that he is going to destroy Babylon because of what they did to his people and what they did to his temple. And uh, that's going to happen. You know what the psalmist is praying here? He's talking to the daughter of Babylon who is going to be destroyed by God. Now notice the psalmist is not calling for anybody to do that. The psalmist is not doing any of this personally. He just believes the word of God. Do you know how effective our praying would be if we could line up with the will of God? And how did this psalmist know the will of God? The same way we do, by studying the word of God. And so the psalmist is calling upon God to do what he has promised to do, what he has purposed to do. And thirdly, a life without regret leaves vengeance to the Lord. Now, this last part is, oh, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. You know what that means? Everything that the psalmist is talking about that he is praying to happen to Babylon is what Babylon did to them. This is what he had to see. This is what he had to live through. This is the horror of life at the Babylonian invasion. He's praying for them to reap what they have sown. He's praying for everything that they have done to the Jews and everything that they've done against God. He's praying for that to be done to them. Now, again, he's not doing it. He's not calling for it. But he is saying, oh, Lord, I'm praying that all of the humiliation and that all of the suffering, that all of the bloodshed, that everything that we have gone through, bring it back upon them. He's calling for God to do it, and he's calling for somebody that God would uh, give the opportunity to be blessed and blessed by God to destroy the Babylonians, to destroy their property, to destroy them, their kingdom, to make it to where they can never, ever, ever do this again, where their children are killed and the bloodline is wiped out. Now, that is something um, that is very hard for us in this generation to look at. It's kind of a, a shocking thing. But there is one thing that uh, we can say that he's doing right. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, means it's an Old Testament thing, the psalmist knew this, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You can't do these kind of things and expect the Lord to remain silent and to remain inactive. When we talk about this, this is not the psalmist that is organizing to go after the Babylonians or to wipe them out or to do anything like that, but he's calling on God to do it and uh, he's leaving room for the wrath of God and for the vengeance of God. And let me just assure you, if you are a person that you have been mistreated, 
God sees it. If you are a person who has gone through some horrific things at the hands of other people, God sees it and God knows it. And what I would encourage you to do is the application of point number one would be don't let it happen to anyone else. If you've been through something like that, then get involved and make sure that no one else has to go through that. It's easy to pull away, to isolate yourself, and to think that maybe you're the only one who has ever gone through something like this, but I assure you it's not true. The Bible says that our sufferings in this life are also experienced by our brothers in the world. And so whatever it is that has been done to you, somebody betray you, then learn how to be the most loyal friend you can be. Somebody has ignored you, then learn how to get involved in other people's life in the right way. Somebody pushed you out and uh, told you in no uncertain terms that you weren't welcome here and they didn't accept you, then learn how to be a welcoming, accepting person uh, on and on. If you grow up in poverty, then help people that are poor. You grew up in a home that, where you were abused, then help other people to escape abuse. All kinds of things we can do. We don't want to be passive. And secondly, as you go through the Word of God and you read about things that you see are the will of God, start praying those things. Start praying those things so that God's will is done and so that you are a part of what he is doing here on earth. He is going to do his will. And he wants us to be involved in his will, to accept his will, and to live in his will regardless of what else might be going on. And then thirdly, don't take personal vengeance. Don't retaliate against other people. God is so much more knowledgeable and more powerful than you are. He knows how to get to them. He knows how to take care of them far better than you do. And it's almost as if God is saying, either you're going to get your puny vengeance against them, or you're going to leave it to me and let a sovereign, powerful God take care of the matter. Your God is your father. And fathers react when their children are hurt. In fact, in the book of Acts, when the deacon Stephen is stoned, he says something very interesting. Scripture tells us when Christ went to heaven, he was seated at the right hand of God. Stephen, as he was being stoned, said, I see him standing at the right hand of God. I heard one preacher that say, as every rock hit Stephen, it was hitting Christ because Christ is the head and Stephen was the body. And when the body is hit, the head reacts. It's also true in Acts chapter 9, when uh, the uh, uh, persecutor Saul is on his way to Damascus and Jesus intervenes and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus feels and knows what his body goes through. And I want to assure you that where you've been wronged and where you've been hurt and the pain that you feel, Jesus, as the head of the church, as the head of the body, he feels and he knows what you were going through. And if you will leave room for him to take vengeance, he certainly will. Let me read you a lengthy quote from Charles Spurgeon. 
Let those who find fault with these curses that were not causeless, who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and their children slain, they might not perhaps be quite so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. It is one thing to talk of the bitter feeling which moved captive Israelites in Babylon and quite another thing to be captives ourselves under a savage and remorseless power which knew not how to show mercy but delighted in barbarities to the defenseless. The song is such as might fitly be sung in the Jews' wailing place. It is a fruit of the captivity of Babylon, and often has it furnished expression for sorrows which else had been unutterable. It's a gem-like psalm within those mild um, the mild radi whose mild radiance there glows the fire which strikes the beholder with wonder. In other words, what is Spurgeon saying? Whenever you look and you criticize this psalmist, he's saying, easy for you to say, you've never been through it. Now, the New Testament is like putting on glasses that makes things clear. We have a further word, of course, from the Lord in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. You're not to retaliate. You're not to get revenge. The Lord will take care of that, won't he? The Lord will be the one who will protect and defend, and he's the one who is the avenger of people who do wrong to his people like you. And Solomon even had a word for us in Proverbs 24, 17 through 20. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Fret not yourself because of evildoers and do not be envious of the wicked for the evil man has no future and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. God is going to take care of it. You don't have to be the one to do it. And you don't have to be the one that gets involved in all of this because a higher power, far greater and stronger than you, has his eye on everything and is in control. And in his time and in his way, he's going to take care of the whole matter. And you and I may suffer a little bit while we're here on this earth, but we've got an eternity to live without any type of suffering at all. Focus on eternity and pray about these things. So do what you can. Stay in the will of God and leave vengeance to the Lord. He is the one who will take care of it. Those are the things that lead you to a life that even though you suffered, and it's bad, it's horrible to suffer. But something is worse than suffering 
and that is having a life of regret. And God wants you to be free from a life that is going to be filled with regret. Being free from that life that says, I never should have done that. What was I thinking? Why did I do that? Oh, if I had only been under control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And God gives you that so that you can line up with His will, plan, and purposes and have a life that is free from the regret that would entangle you and enslave you. And so, as you think about those things and as we finish up this psalm, read back through it. Read it from the first verse to the very end and meditate upon these things because there's a lot of beauty in here and a lot of practicality for hurting people. In the world, Jesus said, you'll have tribulation. It's going to hurt. It's going to be tough. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to catch you off guard. It's going to cause your flesh to rise up and want to get revenge. But then he says these words, Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And to that we say, Praise your holy name, Lord Jesus. We leave it in your hands, the God who does all things well, and we rest in thee. Thank you for your time. And uh, get the newsletter from the church website at gracewayokc.org. And uh, as you do that, pray for one another, minister to one another, because there are uh, people who need your touch, and God will touch them through you. Thank you for your time. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you on Sunday. God bless.